What's your name? Brian Gordon. Good to meet you, man. Yeah, yeah. Good to have you guys here tonight. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, as we talked about last week, in our all-in readings, especially in the Old Testament right now, we come across all of these <clears throat> smaller stories, individuals, and, and events that happen. And these, of course, come together to be chapters, episodes in the large story of God, in the redemption story of this holy God who is reaching out to imperfect, sinful people like us for our salvation. Some of these stories, like last week and I think this week as well, are stories that have a certain shock value to them. Uh, The story of us is certainly tonight is one of those. And what we're going to try to do tonight is not only try to get into that story and understand what was going on at that moment, but also place the story within the context of what was going on before and after and in the large story, including the story of Jesus. Now, we have read the story of Uzzah and, uh, in Second Samuel as we've been going through our all-in readings, as well as uh, the story in First Chronicles chapter 13. So here we go, Second Samuel 6, 1 through 11. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was, in, which was on the hill. Uz and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry. David was angry because of the Lord's wrath and how it had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid. Two emotions there, anger and fear. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. All right. So here's kind of the history leading up that moment. Um, What's been going on? We remember David was anointed to be king by Samuel. That didn't mean he was crowned king. That did not mean he began to reign. It meant God was calling him out to be king. And then David patiently waited for Saul, the reigning king, to pass away. As Saul chased after him and tried to capture him and end his life various times. Now, King Saul, at this point, has died in battle with the Philistines. 
realizing that that field was lost uh, and that he, he had already been wounded by arrows, he chose to take his own life. Jonathan died with him as well as his other sons. That means there was no, no heir to the throne there. And that really set the stage for David to finally be crowned king, begin to reign. Uh, things are rarely that smooth and that simple, even today with political translation, transitions, certainly not smooth and simple back then. Um, the death of Saul did not bring like this automatic, smooth transition. Oh, now David's going to be king. Everyone's been waiting on this. No, there was a seven-year civil war in Israel. And finally, as we know, Israel finally unites around David, and they proclaim him to be their legitimate king. Now, it wasn't long after that that David realized it's time. It's time for the Ark of the Covenant to be moved to Jerusalem the new capital city of Israel. Two decades earlier, the ark had been lost in battle, one of the battles, many battles against the Philistines. It had been captured by the Philistines. Um, Philistia initially uh, treasured the ark. They realized that this uh, was at the center of Israel's national identity, although they probably didn't understand exactly how, but they knew it was incredibly important to Israel. And so they were proud of their capture, uh, they relished that they had the ark, at least for a while, until everywhere they took it, curse, death, destruction, that ark did not bring good favor where it went among the Philistines. So, for eventually, remember, eventually the Philistines just put the thing on an ox cart, kind of whacked the backs of the oxen, pointed them toward Jerusalem, and said, you know, we're done with this thing. They just kind of sent it off. Now, for years, the ark had been kept in the home of a fellow named Abinadab. David sent a large, I mean 30,000, large military detachment to go and retrieve the sacred ark. And that's the story we just read. It doesn't end well there. As the ark was being transported on top of this brand new ox cart... Uh, moved over uneven terrain, moved up a steady climb and elevation toward the city of Jerusalem. At one point along these ancient roads, the oxen stumble. Uzzah puts his hand out and secures the ark uh, from toppling over, and he's struck dead. So yeah, everybody's scared to death. David is afraid. You can imagine the people around there were afraid. Uh, the mission to move it is put on a hold at this point, and it is then put in this home nearby of Obed-Edom, and as long as it's there, those three months, just blessings, blessings upon his household. Finally, the ark is in Israel, at least, and among God's chosen people. Months later, David decided once again, let's do this, let's get the ark to Jerusalem. That's where it belongs this time, everything goes well. There's music. There's dancing. Um, this procession is joyous. The ark goes where it needs to be, at the center of Israel's national identity of life there in Jerusalem. Now, if you approach the Bible as a skeptic, as an atheist, as an unbeliever, this story seems to confirm probably a lot of your suspicions about the Bible, about religion perhaps in general, that it is at best something useless, um, 
something that holds people in superstition. Um, an ancient God who is capricious and cruel. The God of Israel here, as we saw even in last week's story, just seems to have a short fuse, ready to blow his top, like he's just waiting on this poor fellow to do something wrong so he can get him. I think for many believers the story is, is also troubling. Probably for most believers the story is troubling because it doesn't seem to line up with the love, with the shalom, the peace, with the grace, with the security that we enjoy as children of God. The story doesn't seem to fit at all with the God revealed to us in the New Testament. Uh, the God who's been revealed perfectly, most perfectly, through Jesus Christ, His own Son, His perfect image. It's a story that makes us uneasy. A story that even today is a little bit scary, I think. Um, would God do something like that again to us? Uzzah makes one little mistake. And he's gone. Again, what we want to do is we want to put this story into the larger context of Scripture. And it should cause us to consider, okay, what was the big deal with this piece of furniture anyway? Um, now, the easy part is the physical description, the ark. You all probably have some idea of what the ark looked like. Relatively small, two feet by four feet. Um, wooden box, acacia wood, covered, gold laid, covered in gold. Uh, it had a lid, heavy lid, made of solid gold. Um, English translations call this space in between the two. There were these two cherubims on the lid facing each other with outstretched arms. The English translations call this the mercy seat. Inside, depends on at what point in the journey you're reading initially, had the, the, the stone tablets that God had given to Moses at Sinai, had a jar of manna, had Aaron's rod as well. It had been kept as they were wandering before this time, as they're wandering around the wilderness, that space, the years, the decades between Egypt and the promised land, it's been kept in the tabernacle, not just in the tabernacle, but at the heart of the tabernacle. The holy of holies. The place no person dared to enter except the high priest once a year. Kept there. The most sacred object in the most sacred space. It symbolized, this is where things get most interesting, I think, beyond the, the physics and the, the weight and the measurements. It symbolized for Israel the presence of God. That they were His chosen people. And that God went with them. This physical sign of intimacy enjoyed between Yahweh and His people. I can't help, as I was reading the story this week, I was thinking of Michelangelo's famous, perhaps the most famous art in the world, Sistine Chapel, right? Um, that depiction of the creation of Adam with God's outstretched finger and Adam reaching up to God. That point of contact between the divine and the mortal. The ark was kind of that, represented that, a marker of that intersection between God and, and us. And David, I think was, well, I don't think, he was right when he thought it needed to be in Jerusalem. 
It needed to be located not in a shed, not in somebody's backyard. It needed to be located in Jerusalem at the center of the nation. Now, personally, I think you could say, based on the Psalms that we have that David wrote, few people longed to be close to the Lord like David. He had a heart after God. He desired God above all else. Symbolically, the nation needed to have this ark at its center of power, at its center of worship, because essentially Israel needed to be reminded constantly that what made them special wasn't their numbers, it wasn't their, their wealth, it wasn't their natural resources, it was their relationship with God. So that ark needed to be there in Jerusalem. It was a visible representation that Israel belonged to God, was a possession of God, that they had been chosen to be image bearers of God, represent God in a priestly sense in the world among the pagan nations. So great. But what happened there in 2 Samuel 6? Why did Uzzah have to die? What did he do to deserve that? Well, as you might imagine, an object as sacred as the ark, one that had been housed in the Holy of Holies previously, was not just a piece of furniture. There were rules about all number of things. People died earlier just from looking in the ark. There were specific rules given for the transport of the ark, for the handling of this. The book of Exodus has these regulations, Exodus 25. Um, And I think they begin to give us an idea of what's going on in this story uh, on the road to Jerusalem with Uzzah. It was to be carried by people. It was not to be carried on a cart. Um, It wasn't to be hauled around by oxen. Um, That's why it had been fitted with these rings and these long poles so that it could be carried by the Korahites, this smaller elite group within the larger Levite group who were responsible with handling objects of worship. So it, it, was, it, was, it was not supposed to be on the ark, okay? To be clear, not in, under any circumstance was the ark to be touched. So yeah, in this procession from Abinadab's, Abinadab's home, Basically, all of the rules are being disregarded. Um, It's being treated like something somebody bought on Craigslist. You know, throw it in the U-Haul, let's go. It was being treated like just a piece of furniture. But that doesn't satisfy most people. I mean, still, he had to die? What's up with that? I'm killed for breaking a a few rules here. Um, Seriously, I mean, we can't keep all the rules that we see in the law of Moses. No one could have. That's why Jesus had to come. We know that. By the way, David, I I appreciate this about the Bible. It contains his reaction. We get to kind of see through David our own emotions as he's fearful and he's angry, right? Um, There's some outrage from David at this story, and I think it's some of what we feel when we experience it. The Bible tells us that in 2 Samuel 6, 8. So the way folks react to this story today, I think it still looks a lot like how David initially reacted to what he saw happening. But a point was made. A very clear 
dramatic point was made. David may not have liked the way it was made. People may not have agreed with the way it was made, but it was made. God is holy. God is not like us. His commands are not to be treated lightly. He is totally different from us. Any relationship that I enjoy with God, any relationship that a human being enjoys with God is 100% mediated by Yahweh. It's on His terms completely. The fact that we could have any sort of relationship with Him is because of His love and His grace, that He would desire to relate to people like me, to people like us, who are broken, who are sinful, is amazing. So there is no way for me to make myself holy, no way for us to make ourselves holy, no amount of good works, no, no amount of prayers or right wording of those prayers, no amount or no level of, of moral goodness. Um, the truth is that any relationship with God is initiated by God and God alone and is mediated by God. We are not His equals. We are not God's buddies we are His creation, designed to worship and serve Him. The other phrase I was thinking about as I was working through this, so I thought about Michelangelo's art, and then I thought about the trip last summer. It was about this time last summer. I and I got to go to England, and we, we did the European Christian workshop over there and everything. But if you've been to London and ridden on the, tomb, uh, on the tube, you know the, the mind the gap, right? Let's mind the gap. They don't want you stepping in front of a in front of a subway car. They don't want you getting stuck in the gap between the subway car and the platform. Mind the gap. It's a dangerous space, the voice constantly <laughs> reminds you over the intercom. And I was thinking of that. My, this is a story about minding the gap. Recognize there is a gap between God and I. And it's not a gap this size. It is a gap the size of the universe. It is a chasm between us. God is, yeah, God is love. God is good. God is powerful. God is merciful. And we could never begin to imagine having a relationship with him, but for his love, but for his mercy, but for him reaching out to us. But another fundamental quality of the one that we gather to worship is his holiness, his separateness, his differentness. Beyond all of the other differences, this is the great divide. This is the gap between Yahweh and me. Goodness, power. Well, we can have some notions about what that is. We can see some versions of that in human beings and in nature around us. Holiness, that's just God. That's, that's God. So I've always wondered, and this is me wondering aloud, so don't get mad at me. This is just me wondering my opinion. I've always wondered if one of the reasons that David was angry in the story is that he was really angry with himself. That's what I wonder. He had to realize that he bore some responsibility here. He had to know this was not the way the ark was supposed to be transported. Uh, from Abinadab's home to Jerusalem. He had to know this was breaking the rules. 
Uh, maybe he felt some responsibility for Uzzah's death. Maybe he was angry with himself again. Speculation, right? My opinion. But if you were to just open the Bible, okay, for the very first time, you don't know any part of the bigger story. You just open it to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and you start reading right there, the one with Uzzah being struck dead for breaking a couple of rules. You could have a view of God as being petty, vindictive. One little sin and Uzzah's, Uzzah's killed. But that's not the way we read the story, is it? We read it as part of the bigger story. The sin of Uzzah and really the people in general around Uzzah was a long time in the making for years and years. God had patiently and God had mercifully chosen to not deliver justice to Uzzah, but rather to extend mercy to Uzzah. Uzzah was a Korahite. He would have known backwards and forwards the regulations about transportation of the ark. He had been trained for this moment. But he chose unilaterally to make his own decision about what was best at that moment, to follow his personal judgment instead of honoring God's revealed wisdom about the transportation of the ark. More than anyone else, someone like Uzzah would have understood that people don't have the right to ignore God's commands, to take matters in their own hands, to violate the sacred trust that is inherent in serving the Lord in this very special way. Very sacred mission that he had been privileged to take on. I know better than God. Really, if you get down to it, that's what's happening in the story. I know better than God. And it's the reason this story speaks really to all of us. It's not just this isolated situation and these special circumstances in 2 Samuel 6. The sin is thinking I know better than God. But His holiness is something I need to be reminded of, and I believe that's why the story is recorded not once but twice in the Old Testament. It's something I need to be reminded of, we need to be reminded of. Any relationship we have with the Lord is a gift that He has given us because of His love. It comes to us by His initiative. And to reach a point where I think I know better than God, to reach that point where God and I are our peers, um, well, then I've traveled a long journey away from an appreciation of, of His holiness, of His separateness. There's a lot of steps that go into coming to that point. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, the command not to touch the ark is literally given to protect people like Uzzah. They're warned. Aaron is warned. They're all warned, as it's recorded in Scripture, that if they touch the ark, they die. The Lord, obviously, because that's commanded, the Lord wants us to live. He wants us to be protected in that way. 
He wants his people to keep a safe distance from this power and holiness that we cannot attempt to reach out and bridge on our own and expect to come out of that alive. Uzzah just wanted to do God a solid by saying by staying the ark when it began to jostle around on that ox cart. And it's easy to miss, but until the moment he is struck in that story, he's taking the initiative, transporting the ark in his own individual way, he in Ohio, elevating himself to the status of being able to second guess or improve upon God's commands. And it results in a pretty scary story for us, doesn't it? We don't have a lot of the backstory about this guy, Uzzah. We don't know much at all about this fellow. Um, we don't know what he was like. And so any extrapolation that we're going to make about his character in general comes from one story. So if we work with the one story that we have, if this is an example of the way he operated in general, um, we begin to get the picture of someone who thought he knew better than God. Someone who thought that he could control God by using his own judgment. And if this is an example of the character of this man, then he was the sort of person who minimized the holiness of God by the way he conducted himself. But maybe he wasn't that sort of person. Maybe this is just a weird, isolated incident. Probably not. If he was this sort of person, though, then God had been merciful and patient for years with Uzzah leading up to this moment on the way to Jerusalem. Again, all we have is the story to work with. But for us, there are some lessons, I think, that we can apply. And as we talked about last week, as with, with the entire story of Scripture and the individual narratives, the chapters within that story, they seem to point to Jesus if we think enough about them. Tim Keller puts it like this, when we have an Uzzah mindset with respect to our relationship with God, we believe that what we enjoy with God is somehow a byproduct of, of our goodness, uh, that God somehow owes us something, that we're on equal terms with God, then we can, Keller says, become cold and proud. It's one alternative. Believing that, hey, we've earned God's favor, that we are somehow entitled to His grace and favor in a way that other people are not, so we're somehow superior to other people, better than other people. Or we can begin to manage God, to help God out. Um, And since we're involved in this, managing God and making decisions for Him, then He needs to run the universe and He needs to run our lives in ways that we agree with, right? If He doesn't, we get bitter, we get angry about that, resentful. So hopefully, we're beginning to get a better picture of just how this strange and scary story of Ezra fits into that larger narrative. Because I think really it is pointing to Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God is grace-based. 
literally caris or gift-based. We enjoy his unmerited favor because of what his son sacrificially and lovingly did for us, offered for our behalf on the cross. We're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're made pure. His righteousness is counted to us as righteousness by faith, not because of our goodness, not because of our merit. And so the story of Uzzah, I think, reminds us of an important reality in our Christian walks. What we enjoy comes to us as a gift from our loving Father. It's not to be treated lightly or taken for granted. Um, We are owed nothing. Amen? We're owed nothing. Um, We're given everything. We're given His Son. We're given His Holy Spirit. We're offered grace and mercy. We're offered His rich love. We're offered in those parables of Jesus that He tells. We're offered a seat at the banquet table (laughs) to dine with the Father How unbelievable is that? All of this is because of his heart. All of this because of his generous gifts to us, not because of our own merits. And so the gospel, the good news, the message that Christ came from heaven to earth to share with us is this. We aren't getting what we deserve Thank God for that. By His love, He has bridged the gap. He has reached across and taken our hand. He has knocked down the dividing curtain. Remember when Jesus was crucified and the veil was torn? That's what He did for us. He took away that separation that was there because of our unworthiness and our sinfulness. So our relationship with God is based on Him and Him alone. So the story of Uzzah, I think it really reminds us of this important reality in our Christian life and in fact points to it. And that means when we gather, we gather with grateful hearts we realize that we are the recipients of great undeserved mercy. And we celebrate that. We have been gifted and blessed by God. How are we going to work from that? How are we going to deal with that? Humbly. Gratefully. Reverently. Probably chapter 2 of this story. We won't get into this tonight. Um, or the better, the, the New Testament parallel of this would be Ananias and Sapphira, right? Another couple that thought they could outmaneuver, outwit Peter and, in fact, the Holy Spirit and met a similar end. Let's pray as we close our time. Father, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Father, we love you and recognizing who you are in the limited capacity that we have to recognize who you are and the difference between us, the gap between your holiness and righteousness and our our sinfulness, our depravity. And understanding that you crossed that gap 
in Jesus Christ to reach out to us and save us and to call us your sons and daughters. It's unbelievable. Father, I pray that uh, for me and for each one of us that we can continue to walk in this fear of the Lord and that it will set us free from all of the lesser fears that we struggle with here in this life. Recognizing that in the end, you and you alone are the supreme almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. You are the one, you and you alone, who will determine our destinies. And Father, we, we cling to that cross. And we say thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And we gather to worship tonight. Amen. Let's be standing. Let's sing together.